Hey, Scene Vault listeners, are you a NASCAR collector? Well, we've got two great magazines for you. First up, we've got the 75 Greatest Drivers. Last season, NASCAR added 25 drivers to its Greatest Drivers list to celebrate their diamond anniversary, and we partnered with them to help tell their legendary tales. This 116-page magazine is packed with the stories that made each of these drivers the greatest we have ever seen. Printed in full color on glossy paper and delivered to fans inside a poly bag to protect its contents, this magazine will sit on the coffee tables of NASCAR fans for years to come. There are also several different covers to collect, including unique designs for Richard Petty, Dale Earnhardt, Jeff Gordon, and more. We've also got a few remaining copies of the 75th Anniversary Magazine, featuring hundreds of pages of photos, profiles, iconic stories, and much, much more covering every single year of NASCAR. Both of these are shipping in high-quality poly bags to protect your collector's item. Get yours today at dailydownforce.com shop. That's dailydownforce.com shop. Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at lionelracing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to lionelracing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by QWare. Maintain excellence. When I look back at some of the things I said and did, I would probably had to whip that guy's ass, I'm just telling you. Bobby didn't lift, and I didn't lift, and Bobby put me in the wall on the first lap of the race. He wanted me to come drive their car. She got all excited, said, what'd you tell him? I said, well, I told him I wasn't interested. She said, you turn this car around right now. David Pearson, he was running second, and I laughed him, and I thought, <laughs> I am showing out today. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Bot Podcast presented by QWare and Steve I got to ask, did you have a chance to see any of that iRacing event from North Wilkesboro on Sunday? I sure did. I caught a good part of it. I tell you what, that computer simulation stuff is, that's unreal, man. I mean, that was North Wilkesboro in the day. It really was. Well, I'm telling you, some of the shots that they showed, it was just like being there. I mean, exactly. the view of that press box, the view of the media parking lot where I spent my longest night ever, <laughs> <laughs> the view of the back gate where I kind of sort of maybe almost proposed to Jeannie, yeah, <laughs> that brought back a lot of memories. And that's what that deal is for. 
that North Wilkesboro effort on iRacing was pretty special. And I, again, everybody else is thanking Dale Jr. for doing it, but I'm going to add my two cents in and say that was a awesome, awesome project. It really was. I think that uh, entire iRacing series has been entertaining for the fans, and certainly a lot of them gotten into it, and a lot of the drivers have too, no question about it. Now, have you seen the 1987 cars that they've added? They've added the 1987 Chevy Monte Carlo, and they've also added the 1987 Ford Thunderbird. The examples that they showed were painted up like Dale Earnhardt's 1987 car and Bill Elliott's 1987 car. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that. Very impressive. Now, is all this enough to make you sign up for iRacing and me and you start racing each other? (laughs) I don't think so, but I would like to try it. (laughs) I'm laying a fender to you, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) You go right ahead. (laughs) Steve, this week in our first segment, you and I talked to Daryl Waltrip for, it was almost two hours. I think right at an hour and 45 minutes, we talked to him over Zoom. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm still not sure that we even scratch the surface because no. he, he was such a huge part of this sport for so many years. Steve, what was your impression of the interview? I tell you what, I think Daryl enjoyed it. I really do. I think he had a ball talking about his passion and all the things that he had been involved in. And he was very forthcoming, very honest, very candid, uh, no holes barred whatsoever. I thought he enjoyed the conversation very much, and I could see it. Steve, in the first segment of the interview that we did, he talks about getting started in the sport. He talks about a relationship that he had with Bud Moore. He talked about his talkative ways and how sometimes that got him into a little bit of trouble. And finally, he did talk about Diegard and his relationship with them. And finally, we did discuss his 1979 championship effort and just falling short to Richard yeah. Petty in that deal. And that was a very, very interesting year for Daryl, 1979. It was uh, a chance for him to win a first championship and with Diegard. Now, I say that because what his later relationship with Diegard was like <laughs> wasn't remotely as competitive or as friendly as it was in 79. Steve, then in our second segment, we are going to go back to the July 21st, 1977 issue of Grand National Scene. That was one of the very first issues, very, very early on in Grand National Scene's story. Daryl won in a crazy finish at Nashville. It was almost as crazy as Lake Speed's 1980 ARCA race at Daytona. And then afterwards, let's just say that Grand National Scene founder and publisher Rob Griggs was not happy <laughs> with Daryl Waltrip after the race. Good grief, man. <laughs> <laughs> he made that very plain. I tell you what, but I will say it now ahead of time. What Rob wrote back then was exactly how many people were thinking about Daryl at that time. Well, I think it speaks to who Daryl was at the time in the late 1970s. He really did tick some people off. Well, he he came across as the Muhammad Ali of Mm -hmm. racing. No question about it. And that did not sit well with a lot of fans. But as we will learn, Daryl had a plan. And maybe that plan went a little bit too far. And he did speak to that. And so that was a good part of the interview. And Steve, finally, this week, 
we've actually had a pretty good week on Patreon. We have new support from David Light, Edwin Turner, and Jeffrey Jones. So David, Edwin, and Jeffrey, thank you for becoming a part of the team. Thank you for becoming a part of our support network who helped make this podcast and the YouTube channel and everything that we're trying to do. Thank you for helping make that possible. So support us on Patreon, support us on PayPal, support QWare, our presenting sponsor, and support Brian Kelb. Again, just like our Patreon supporters, QWare, Eric Quinn, Brian Kelb at Speedway Screens, they help make this podcast possible, and we do truly appreciate that. Now, if you want to help us on Patreon, you can do that at patreon.com slash the same podcast. Or if you would rather just do a one-time show of support, you can do that at paypal.me slash the same podcast. DW, you ran your first several cup races in 1972, 1973. Was there a specific moment or race when you felt like you'd made it in the sport, or was that something that developed over time? Well, I, I tell you what was amazing. Uh, I had that Mercury. Uh, I bought that Mercury from Holman and Moody. I didn't know at the time uh, it was a 69 Mercury when I bought it from Holman Moody. I didn't know until Jake Elder came to work for me that it was actually the car uh, that Mario Andretti had won the Daytona 500 in. It, it started out its life as a 67 Fairlane. Of course, you know, back in those days, you just put a different body on it or update the body or whatever. So I bought it. It was a 69 Mercury. I wrecked it. I took it over to Hutchin Pagan and they turned it into a 71 Mercury Cyclone like the Woods Brothers run. And my first race was Talladega. People always say, well, why did you choose Talladega? Because that's when we got the car done. So the car was ready to go. The next race was Talladega. So we went to Talladega, which ironically was the last place that uh, Holman Moody had run that car with uh, a guy named Ralph Stallman, I believe his name was, qualified third or fourth, uh, and something happened to the car and they fell out of the race. But anyway, bought the car, went to Talladega. Uh, Jake Yolder, I rented him from Hutchin Pagan. He was working over there. Uh, he had been at Petty's and he came and worked in the shop at Hutchin Pagan. I needed somebody to help me. So Dick Hutchinson, who fixed the car for me, put the 71 body on it for me, said, Jake knows a car. Jake's a crew. He's been a crew chief. Why don't you take him with you? and He'll help you stay out of trouble. I said, great. So Jake is my crew chief. We go to Talladega. I had gone down to, I lived, uh, my father-in-law lived in Owensboro, Kentucky. My sponsor was Terminal Transport, which was a company that uh, my father-in-law's company owned, trucking outfit out of Georgia, hauled a lot of cars and stuff, new cars out of, out of Detroit. So I had terminal transport on the car. I'd gone down to the local, uh, my father-in-law had gone down to the local uh, Oldsmobile dealer and bought me a truck. Uh, it, was a, it was a coffee truck, Maxwell House coffee truck. And it was <laughs> an old line truck that they had used, old international. It was, it was kind of a piece of crap, but, you know, it, it worked for what I needed. And so I load everything I had in the back of that truck, and I had to head to Talladega. I meet Jake down there. We roll up the back door. And Jake looks in the back of the truck and he says, where's your tools? <laughs> I'd gone down to Western Auto. It's no lie. I went to Western Auto in Owensboro and bought a small uh, set of tools, things I thought we'd need. Uh, and I had uh, some tires that had come with the car. 
and uh, I had no spare. I had no, I know I had no spare parts. Wow. And and I, and Jake, I thought he was just going to leave me right there, just turn around, and walk <laughs> away. But he said, "All right, well, we'll 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 deal with it." So we unloaded the car, got through tech, everything went fine. Got in the race, and you may Steve probably remembers this. I don't know, Ricky may not. That particular race was the race when Goodyear had decided instead of running the slick race, the tire that they'd been running there, they came with a treaded tire like they ran everywhere else. Well, that treaded tire turned out to be a problem. The guys could, Petty, Pearson, Alice, all those guys, they could run about 10 laps. Those tires would fly all to pieces. they come apart. The car I had and the tires I had for the car were the old Talladega slicks. So that's the tires we had. And Jake was mad about that from the very get-go. You're never going to be competitive running those old tires. Those old tires are junk. Nobody's running those tires. All the good guys are running the treaded tire. I said, that's all I got. It's like, I can't afford to buy anything. We're going to have to run these. So two guys had those same tires, me and James Hilton. So we started the race. <laughs> yeah. And, I, I, you know, I'm a rookie. I don't know anything. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've been racing in Nashville, Salem. All the, I'm a short track punk. I'm a Talladega 2.6 mile super speedway. I never saw a track that big in my life. So what the hell am I doing here? But anyway, they start the race. And the first thing you know, man, I just passed, I just passed David Pearson. I just passed Richard Petty. First off, I just passed Buddy Baker. What is wrong with these guys? I thought, oh my God. And Jake, you got to remember something. Now Jake had a really bad reputation for being known as a cheater. So my first thought was, well, I guess they are going to kick me out because I know we must not have a plate. They must have left a restrictor plate off this motor because there's no way I could be passing those guys as easy as I was. I didn't know they were having tire trouble. So anyway, I end up, me and Hilton, and James Hilton end up in a heck of a race. Uh, I, I probably could have won that race if I hadn't had engine trouble, but late in the race I had engine trouble. Hilton went on to won the race, and uh, I left there thinking, this is a piece of cake. I mean, I go to my first race. I'm passing the big stars. Uh, I could have won this race. I, Manny, I'm, I'm on my way. And so, 72 was really kind of a good year. We, we uh, Jake and I, uh, he came to work for me, and we, we ran, uh, I think, six or seven at Charlotte in the fall race. Uh, I think we had a couple of thirds at Nashville. So, the car I had, the engines I had, and everything I had at the time were pretty good. And, uh, of course, I'm young, and what you don't know, you don't know. And I'd get out there and, you know, I'd, I'd go like hell and and I did pretty well. So 72 was a great start. And I thought, this is exactly what I needed. This is what I built my, this is what my whole life I've been building up for this moment, for this to be in the, in the Winston Cup Series, racing with the big stars. I've proven I can, I can compete. Uh, boy, am I going to have myself a ball. Well, <laughs> little did I know, uh, that was just the tip of the iceberg. 73, I, uh, I got in a I, – I, look, if I'm talking too much, tell me. But if, uh, if uh, I, I, I was always con- – I always consider myself an outsider. When I, when I came into the sport, my family – none of my family had ever raced. I, I wasn't an Earnhardt. I wasn't a Jared. I wasn't a Baker. I wasn't any of those father-son uh, acts that had previously, you know, been in the sport or helped build the sport. So – I'm an outsider. I grew up in Owensboro, Kentucky. I lived in Franklin, Tennessee. Uh, I show up, uh, you know, and, and, and I think I'm pretty hot stuff because I've won a couple of track championships in Nashville. I'm the guy to beat when you come to Nashville. So I'm pretty proud of what I've done and pretty proud of myself. And uh, 
people always say, well, you sure talked about yourself a lot. I said, well, I was afraid you weren't going to. So I, <laughs> I, I had a bad habit of, of, of Shadwick. You remember Shadwick? Steve, does. I know. Oh, yeah. Play times. France wanted me to go out to, uh, to Ontario after we raced Ontario. Wanted me to go out to L.A. and have a dinner with Shavlik. And I'll never forget this. And I, Stevie and I were just talking about this yesterday. So I, and, and I want to make a good impression because this guy's like one of the best writers in the country. Race for the L.A. Times. I mean, this guy's cool. Older fella. So we're having dinner. And I sit down and I guess I'll probably never shut up. Kind of like now. And, and so he it, finally we talked and we talked and we talked. And he asked me one question. And. I don't. I think it's the only time he asked. He asked one question. The rest <laughs> of I was off the phone. So we sat for a long time, and finally I stopped, and he stopped, and we looked at each other, and he said, "Can I give you a little advice?" I said, "You go ahead. Everybody else does. Um, you know, I, I could take some advice." He said, "You talk too much." <laughs> I said, "I do." <laughs> he said, "You talk until you get yourself in trouble." He said, you need to learn how to answer the questions, and that's all. And don't add on or ad lib or any of those other things that you seem to be pretty good at. Just answer the questions, and you'll be a whole lot better off. I wish I had to listen to him. That was a good <laughs> I, I, I wish I had taken that advice, but you know me, uh, young and dumb and energetic and felt like I had to, had to prove myself all the time, and I did talk a lot. I will, I will admit that, but – I have to say that people said I talked a lot, but you got to remember those other guys didn't talk any. That's yeah. true. You know, That's asked, true. How's your, car? How's your car? Oh, it's good. Oh, how do you think you'll do? That? Oh, I think I'll do all right. You know, they were they were one-liners, and that was it. But I had a tendency to, you know, never let the truth stand in the way of a good story. So <laughs> That's how – I don't know if I – I don't even know what question you asked me. Now I forgot. But anyway. <laughs> you answered it. I got to Mercury, and that's when I went to Talladega, and that was the beginning of my career. Daryl, 1973, you did run a handful of races for Bud Moore later in yeah. the season. Did you yeah. know going in that that was going to be a limited deal, or were you maybe hoping for a more long-term program with them? Yeah, I thought, again, I thought, I, you know, I thought, well, this is a Bud Moore, famous car builder. Uh, Bobby Isaac had been driving the car. Uh, Bud was in with Ford Motor Company. And so when Bud wanted me to drive his car, I thought, well, this is a great opportunity I've been looking for. Uh, I, I don't have to spend my own money. I can go drive somebody else's car and, uh, and, and hopefully, you know, things will work out. Bud told me when I went to drive the car, I think he had stay power, which I don't know what that was, some oil additive, uh, that, that was a temporary sponsor. And Bud said to me, he said, if we can find a sponsor for you for next year, then we're going to run you next year. Well, I was, I was so happy about that. And, excited uh but things didn't work out at all with me and bud uh we were totally opposites um i had a tendency to kind of know what i wanted and what i liked and what i didn't like and bud was just he was the same way i'll give you a good example bobby isaac been driving the car bobby's a pretty small guy i go down to buds to get suited to get fitted up in the car to go to darlington that was our first race southern 500 and uh I, I, I get in the, I try to get in the car. I can't get in a seat. I mean, this seat is a little, it's a real narrow and it's real tight and I can barely squeeze into it. And I told Bud, I said, Bud, we're going to have to change this seat. Hell no, we ain't changing that seat. <laughs> What's wrong with you? I said, well, it's not big enough. I, 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 Bobby was, he was a little bigger. Than, he was a little smaller than me. And I, I just, 
I can't get myself back in this seat. I'm not comfortable. Well, you're going to have to learn to be comfortable in that seat because Ford Motor Company spent thousands of dollars developing that seat. It's got the lumbar support. It's got this. It's got that. And uh, so you're just going to have to deal with that seat. I said, all right, all right, I'll do it. So we get the seat. And I get kind of halfway comfortable in it. Then I get, I got to have Isaac's helmet because it had radios in it. I didn't have radios. So I got this helmet. I'm a seven and a three eighths, maybe a seven and a half. This is a seven and a quarter helmet. Ooh. <laughs> so I'm trying to get this helmet on my head. And I said, but I'm, I'm not going to be able to use this helmet. What the hell are you talking about, boy? <laughs> no, but it's just a little too tight. It doesn't fit good. I can't get it down. He said, well, you're just going to have to learn how to deal with that helmet. Cause that helmet has got the radios in it and I got to be able to talk to you. I said, okay. Okay. So now I got a seat I don't fit in. I got a helmet that's giving me a headache and I hadn't even gone out on the track yet. And I got Bud Moore and you know, Bud, Steve does. I know. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. He was, he was chewing my butt out before I, I mean, even left the garage yet. And he's all <laughs> on my case about how to drive the car, where to run on the track and blah, 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 blah. Never just constant. So we get, we qualified second, I think. Bobby was on pole and Allison, I think I was second or we were third and fourth. Anyway, I was on the outside. Bud grabs me by the collar like I always did back in the day. And he said, boy, listen to me. Don't you go in that third turn on the outside of anybody. I said, okay. He said, you go, on, you go in that third turn on the outside of somebody, they're going to put you in the wall. I said, okay, okay, I got it. Don't go on the outside of anybody in the third turn. I got it. So we come around, they drop the green flag, and we go down the back straight away, and I'm side by side with Bobby Allison. And I'm thinking, <laughs> he'll lift. He'll lift. He'll, he, he's got to lift. I'm going to drive in this corner, and, and he's going to lift, and I'm going to swoop down in front of him. Don't go, on that, don't go on the outside of anybody in that third turn. I've already been lectured about that. Well, guess what? Bobby didn't lift, and I didn't lift, and Bobby put me in the wall on the first lap of the race. <laughs> <laughs> How'd that work that out way, for you? That was the way, that was my relationship with Bud Moore. It never got much better than that. Uh, we wrecked a couple of times. We blew up a couple of times. Had a couple of pretty good pretty good races. By the way, I don't know if you remember this or not, but I probably created the biggest fire. Yes, Richmond. Been in racing yeah. at Richmond. Yeah. Uh, Baxter Price spun out like first, second, third lap of the race. I'm following Bobby's Allison's leading the race. I'm running second, going down the back, and I'm I'm all over the back of Bobby. And we get into third and fourth turn, and Bobby turns on the pit road. I said, What is wrong with that big dummy? I, well, what was wrong with him was a car sitting crossways in the track. It was Baxter Price. <laughs> I nailed him. And when I did, I mean it exploded. A fire, I mean, cars crashed, cars on fire. Every I mean, it like scared me to death. I'd never been in a fire before. And you know what was the worst part? Bud Moore on the radio. Boy, boy, get out of that car and get that damn radio before you come back over here. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm lucky to get out alive. He tells me to get the damn radio before we get out of there. So anyway, we, I, 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 later on, Bud and I became great friends. I love Bud Moore, but that was not a good experience for DW. Well, after that, were you actively looking for another ride or were you content to run your own stuff? Oh, I just went, I went back and I re, I kind of, uh, regrouped and, uh, in 74, uh, got my team back together with, uh, Harry Hyde and the K and K team. They had folded. So I had a lot of really, really good people. Robert G was my, uh, kind of fabricator body man. Jake was my crew chief, Larry Reagan. 
Ray Fox was doing, Junior was doing our engines. We were all racing out of Robert's shop there on Huspeth Road and uh, started off the 74 season with my own team, my own cars. And uh, and, and actually went, it, it went really well for a underfunded team. See, that was, a, that was the other thing. Because my father-in-law was the president of Texas Gas, well, everybody thought I had a lot of money. And so they didn't know how, how, how I struggled to make it, how I had to write, I had to write bad checks and borrow money. I'd pay Jake on Friday and borrow the money back on Monday. Uh, it was just, it was, it was, it was a, it was a terrible situation. I found myself in had, I, I could run with these guys. I could beat these guys, but I didn't have the money to keep up with these guys. They didn't have the deep pockets. And so the end of 74, we started the 75 season and, uh, I was struggling, man. I had no money. I was broke. Uh, I, Huggins would sell me. Bless, bless, bless the Huggins guys. They took care of me. They gave me. They let me have tires and pay them when I could. Dick Hutchinson helped me a bunch. Uh, a lot of people helped me. Robert G. I, I mean, I, I couldn't have made it without Robert and uh, Jake and that whole crowd. But uh, along in the middle of '75, and I, I think you probably remember this. Uh, I I, w- I ran really well, and uh, that's when Diegard had come on the scene uh, with Donnie Allison, and Donnie was driving for Diegard, and they were based in Daytona. And, and uh, I, I never forget this: it's a Fourth of July race, Daytona, and uh, I passed Donnie on the last lap to finish third or fourth. And it, and Bill Gardner was so upset with Donnie that he let me pass him because I'm underfunded, I'm a rookie, I don't know anything. He's spending all this money. He's got this veteran, Donnie Allison, and this kid from Tennessee blows by him on the last lap and finishes him. He fired Donnie on the spot, and uh, I didn't know all this until later. So Stevie and I, uh, her mom and dad had a house down in Vero Beach, Florida. So we left Daytona and went to Vero, spent a couple of days down there, came back up to Daytona to pick up my check, and I stopped in the Daytona office, and they said, have you seen Jim Gardner? I said, I don't even know who Jim Gardner is. Well, that's Bill Gardner's brother, and uh, they're looking for you. I said, they are looking for me? What did I do? No, no, no. They want to hire you. They want to hire me? Are you kidding me? I'm better than they are. I got a better car than they do. I outrun them every week. I don't think I'm going to be – I'm not interested. So, well, just know Jim Gardner's looking for you. Would you not believe – and, Steve, you know how these things go. Steve and I are going to drive – back from Daytona to Charlotte. We stopped in a gas station to get some gas, and guess who was in the same gas station? Jim Gardner. Was he really? He was. <laughs> so he said, where have you been? We've been trying to get in touch with you. We want to hire you. I said, well, I'm not interested. I said, you're not interested? I said, no, 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 no. I got a pretty good team. Things are starting to work pretty good for me. Um, you guys got a lot of problems. Mario Rossi was the engine guy. Good man. I love Mario, but, you know, had a lot of engine problems. Anyway, we get in our cars and we leave uh, the gas station. And Stevie's in the car and she said, what did he want? I said, ah, it's Bill Gardner's brother. And he wanted me to come drive their car. And he said, and she said, she got all excited. So what'd you tell him? I said, well, I told him I wasn't interested. She said, you turn this car around right now. You go <laughs> him. Are you crazy? you got to go drive for them. That's, we don't have any money. We're broke. We're week to week. And, and you can go drive for somebody else, and you don't have to worry about all that. 
So anyway, we talked about all the way back to Charlotte and finally I got to Charlotte and I called him. And I said, you know, I thought that over and um, actually I'm pretty interested. So the middle of 75, I went to drive for Diegard and uh, then I stayed there through the end of 75. And then we got the Gatorade deal and uh, moved the team from Daytona to Charlotte. Robert Yates came to work for us. A lot of Buddy Parrott, David F., a lot of good people. And, uh, and, and once again, we were rolling. I won 29 races. Almost won the 79 championship driving for them. And uh, it was a tumultuous relationship, but we had good people. We had good cars, good motors, but uh, I just, I didn't, I wasn't happy there. Uh, I, I wanted to get, I wanted to get away from there and, and things just didn't work out. Wasn't Bill's fault, wasn't Jim's fault, wasn't anybody's fault. We just weren't meant for each other. Well, back up a little bit. You got your first win in May of 75 right. at Nashville. Right. How big a deal was that for you? I mean, oh, right man. there in Nashville. Well, of course, everybody, that was my home track. Uh, yeah. I had two track championships there. I'd won about 60, 70, I don't know, a lot of feature races. So that was my home track. Uh, I'd won a USAC race there, a USAC stock car race there, beat all the big USAC stars. Uh, John Cock, Hunter, I don't know, a whole bunch of them are here for that race. Hartman, that was all the, all the hot shots from USAC. So we won a USAC race there. And uh, then that race was so fun because it was Mother's Day weekend. One of my all-time favorite pictures uh, is Victory Lane. And Stevie and I and, and Jake and Robert, all my team. And little Michael, my, my little brother, he's standing down her left front corner of the car, all got the kinky hair, hairdo. And, uh, and that was my first win. And uh, I was so happy because my grandmother had taken me to races when I was six years old in Owensboro. Her favorite driver was G.C. Spencer. I was a big G.C. Spencer fan. And so my grandmother took me to a lot of races before I started racing. And so it was so gratifying and so felt so good to my grandmother my grandfather my mom my dad my whole family were there and it was mother's day weekend and we won that race and the next day we went over to the park and had a big cookout and uh it, you'd, you'd have thought i won the daytona 500 which it kind of felt like that to me but that was my first win and and one i'll never forget DW, I have always considered Stevie to be one of the classiest women who ever stepped foot in the NASCAR garage. And you've already mentioned the fact that you like to talk. And it there were times that you made people mad with what you were saying. There was the whole Kale Yarbrough Jaws incident. There was Richard Petty. There was Bobby Allison. Yeah. All those years when you would say something that made somebody mad, what were the conversations with her? Like once you got home, was she like now, Daryl? <laughs> what were those conversations like? It usually wasn't before I got home. <laughs> I, I can't tell you how many times I'd be doing an interview and I'd be mouthing off about something, and she'd be standing over in the background. I could see her, and she'd be shaking her hand, shaking her head, saying, "No, no, no, don't say that. Stop, stop now." But I couldn't help myself, and I, you know, I felt like I always felt like I was a. a, a a little fish in a big sea. Uh, and, and so I, I figured out and I, and I, I kind of knew that the media was my best friend. Uh, if, if the other, and, and I mean, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but the other guys, they really didn't have, they didn't talk. 
Uh, they, they, they didn't have opinions about anything. They were all scared of NASCAR. They were afraid to be too outspoken. And I didn't really care. Uh, you know, I figured, what the hell, I'm, I may or may not be here forever. I just don't know. And so I, 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 I always felt like the best way for me to make, pe- make people know who I was, uh, was was to talk to the media. And so, uh, you know, and the media knew that, and it was, you know, Wade and Higgins and and uh, Cat from down there, Winston-Salem, and four Mulher. five. Yeah, yeah, Mulher. <laughs> four five of them would all, you know, we'd all go play. They'd play cards, and, and uh, Jake and Herb and Bud and all of them would play cards with them. And so the media was my friends, and uh, and and so I, I used the media a lot uh, to send messages. Sometimes I'd send a message to Cale or Richard or Bobby or – whomever. And sometime I'd send a message to uh, Bill France Jr. <laughs> Bill, Kale, Bobby, Richard, none of those guys ever call me, but now Bill France Jr. He would call you. I'll never forget. So we're somewhere, I don't know, they made a rule and it, it was directly related. It was something that affected me. And I was so upset about it. Monday morning, I get on the phone, I call it off and call Bill Francis off. He answered the phone. I said, Bill, I want to know who the dumbass was that made that rule. He said, you're talking to him. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I, I didn't mean – when I look back on my career and I look back at some of the things I said and did, uh, I, I'd probably had to whip that guy's ass, I'm just telling you. Because it it, a lot of things were – it was obnoxious. Uh, it was sometimes over the top. and. I regret sometimes some of the things I said, or I never did anything on the racetrack that was bad. It was just mostly off the track comments I'd make about Earnhardt or, you know, somebody that they were probably in hindsight, not the right thing to do, but that's who I was. Well, Daryl, I let you, <clears throat> let you know something there. Media back then knew exactly what you were doing and we <laughs> loved it. <laughs> we loved it. You, you wait, like, wait, you'd yeah. know, you know, like Richard or Bobby or David or whoever win the race, and the headlines it would be Waltrip said. <laughs> <laughs> Man, they are athletes that we call good copy, and you were good copy. We went looking for you. I <laughs> can those days. But back to the race in 1977, you had a really good year with yeah. it. Turned out to be the best at that point. Six wins, fourth in the standings. Hey. I know your relationship with the gardeners might not have been all that good, but what was the difference here? We moved. Uh, when wow. I went, when I went to work for them, uh, when, when I started driving for them, they were based in Daytona. Bill Gardner knew nothing about racing. Uh, he and his son, uh, he and his brother-in-law, Prespero, I think that's how you say it. That's where the die, D-I and the guard, Gardner, Dipresto and Gardner, they combined that to make die guard. So, and, and, uh, uh the press row had a wreck and he, uh, I think he ended up in a, in a coma or something happened to him. And so he, he was, he couldn't be involved with the race team and Bill sort of inherited the race team and Bill, he knew nothing. Bill was a banker. He was a businessman from New, from Connecticut. So he didn't know a lot about the sport. And, uh, and, and, and so he thought being in Daytona because that's where the headquarters is. If he had a, race team, he'd need to be near the headquarters. And so we had a shop down on Pinterest Boulevard, or they did, uh, just a few blocks from the, from the NASCAR offices. He thought that was a big advantage. 
I thought that was a big disadvantage. Personally, I wanted to get as far away from him as I could myself. <laughs> in most cases, uh, to I needed some breathing room. But anyway, so I went to work for him, and Mario Rossi was the engine guy. Robert Yates and I had become good friends, and uh, I finally convinced uh, Gardner that the only way we're ever going to be successful is we got to move to Charlotte because that's where all the car, that's where all the people are. Uh, that's where that's that's the hub, and we need to get out of Daytona. We were. We were a day. We were a day or two behind every time we went somewhere. We'd have to drive from Daytona to wherever, Darlington, Charlotte. It didn't matter where we went. We were always like a day behind, and had to get the car there, and then had to get the car home. And so, our truck was on the road all the time, and uh, it just it just wasn't working out. So we bought a uh, a shop over by the uh, Charlotte Airport near home in the Moody, and uh, that's when all the good people. That's when Buddy Parrott, David Hill. Jay, Robert Yates, Ducky knew. I mean, we had we had some good people. In uh, 77, we moved and things picked up. And we started winning races, had a pretty good year in 78. 79 was our year. Uh, we, And to Bill Gardner's credit, he gave us everything we needed uh, to win that championship. And the uh, only problem was uh, I short-circuited a couple of times. And, and maybe, you know, we had some things happen that, we, that shouldn't have happened that we could have avoided. Bobby wrecked me at Wilkesboro. Uh, I wrecked myself at Darlington. I had a huge point lead over Richard. And I, I was, I was so, I was so determined to beat Richard Petty and to beat all those guys. You know, that old, you know, was it Rick Flair say to be the man, you got to beat the man. Well, that, that was, that was how I felt. The only way I'm ever going to be, respected in this sport is I, I got to beat these guys. And I got to beat them good. And uh, I ended up beating myself. And and, Darling, and Darlington really was the worst race. The Southern 500, Pearson was driving, I think, Earnhardt's car or yeah. Donnie's car or somebody. And uh, I lapped him. With 50 laps to go, David Pearson, the Silver Fox, the king of Darlington, and I lapped him. He was running second. And I lapped him. And I thought, <laughs> I am showing out today. I'm showing these boys how it's done. And Buddy <laughs> and David F are screaming at me on the radio. You got to slow down. You're going to wreck. You're going to hit. You got to back off. And I and I'll never forget. I came out and said, "You two knuckleheads, leave me alone. I know what I'm doing." And about two laps later, guess Whacked. where I was? <laughs> In the wall. Wow. And and so that it was kind of demoralizing uh, because it. I kind of did it to myself. So I made it, it was the best thing that ever happened to it. It was the worst thing at the time, but I think it turned out to be the best thing because I made a commitment that day after that race, I was never going to beat myself again. Cause I didn't, nobody beat me. I beat myself. Mm. And so I, I wrote it on my dashboard. I, 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 I had everywhere I could look. I said, I would write, don't beat yourself. And how many guys have we seen do that through the years? And, and that was a good lesson for me. And Richard won that championship by 11 points. Uh, and it taught me a good lesson.
Hello, Scene Vault Podcast listeners. This is Eric Quinn from QWare. Again, I just want to say thank you for listening to the Scene Vault Podcast and Rick and Steve and the wonderful interviews they've been doing with the folks from NASCAR history, the drivers, the crew chiefs, the people that made it all happen over the years. At QWare, we are very proud to be a part of this podcast and being able to bring it to you, especially at a time when you have limited entertainment options. We hope that you're enjoying it, and we hope that you get a chance to check us out at QWareCMMS.com. QWare is one of the most powerful, simple-to-use, computerized maintenance management systems on the market for your facility's maintenance team. Whatever your business, check us out. QWareCMMS.com. We're here to help your team maintain excellence. From all of us at QWare, we hope that you and your family stay safe and healthy. Now let's get back to the podcast. Thanks for listening. Steve, you touched on it a little bit in the intro, but tell me about the Daryl Waltrip that you knew back in the 1970s. At first, we didn't know much about him, but eventually we started listening to what he was saying. And he was, he was always talking. And I tell you what, it wasn't the easiest thing for everybody to accept. They thought that he was just twisting the noses of the established stars of the day, uh, David Pearson or Richard Petty. Bobby Allison, he was totally different from those guys. Those guys, yeah, they were fairly good talkers, but they weren't as outlandish in the way they spoke and the subjects they covered as Daryl was. Now, to me, Daryl became one of my go-to guys. <laughs> oh, you could get Yes, sir. Great stuff. <laughs> you know, it, it, it was very simple. Issues of the day. Okay, let's get some information about the issues of the day. First person you go to, Richard Petty. No doubt about it. Then you go to Daryl. And boy, where Richard would say four, five, six sentences, you get four, five, six paragraphs out of Daryl. And I really thought he was kind of a breath of fresh air in, in racing. I thought he had a, the ability to stir up controversy, sure. But he also had the ability to give solid opinions on the subjects of the day. Now, the story that he told about Shav Glick set up for us who Shav Glick and why that was an important contact, not only for Daryl, but for NASCAR as well. Oh, yeah, that's because Shav Glick was the racing writer for the Los Angeles Times. He was very well established and very well respected. He covered not only portions of NASCAR races, such as the Daytona 500 and Riverside at that time and, th and Ontario, things like that. But he also covered several IndyCar races, including the Indianapolis 500. So he was a well-known and well-respected writer with a major newspaper. Now, you can just see the effect that could have on Daryl, getting up with a writer of that status. And of course, anytime NASCAR can get itself in the Los Angeles Times at that time. That was tremendous for them, too. So it was a natural mix. Now, Steve, I'm sure you probably don't remember this, but I was not able to go to the Bush Series banquet in the year 2000. And so Scene actually lined up Shav Glick to cover the Bush Series banquet for us really? that year. In my mind, I'm thinking that it took a reporter of Shav Glick's stature to replace Rick Houston. No, I don't think I, I don't think so. Wow, <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I tell the truth, Rick, we saved money. That's all. 
<laughs> Steve, if nothing else, doing this podcast has helped keep me humble. <laughs> <laughs> and Shav did tell Daryl that he talked too much and that he kept talking until he got himself in trouble. And Daryl's response, I think, says a lot. I wish I'd listened to him. <laughs> well, I'm kind of glad Daryl didn't because uh, <laughs> racing has been a lot more colorful with Daryl along. Was that just a personality trait of Daryl's that he tended to talk a lot? Was it maybe even a nervous habit? Or was that something that you think he intentionally cultivated on his own as a direct opposition to the yeah. David Pearsons and the Richard Petties of the day? Both. Where I, what I mean is, I think he realized by being the kind of self-promoting talker that he yeah. was, he was getting attention and he needed to do that, he thought, because he was up against all these storied legends in the sport. And to make his way forward in the sport, he decided, well, I better just talk and make myself known. Now, the other half of that equation is that he was a natural talker. And the reason I know this it's because I sat down with it one time, and I didn't want to talk racing at all. I just wanted him to tell me something about his youth back in Owensboro, Kentucky at the time. And he told this terrific story of drag racing on the streets in Owensboro, Kentucky. And then when the cops showed up, they weren't drag racers. They were just standing around getting ready to drag race. They all appeared before a judge. And, of course, Daryl's case was going to be, no, we weren't drag racing. We were standing around. Well, he told a buddy of his who was going to be on the stand just to go up there and say we weren't going to drag race. We were just standing around. And the guy said, okay, I'll do it. So the guy's on the stand. And the lawyer, the prosecuting lawyer, comes up to him and says, son, do you know what perjury is? <laughs> <laughs> And the guy says, no, sir. He said, perjury is lying to the court, and you can go to jail for it. And the guy said, he did it, he did it. <laughs> Daryl said, he was going to do it. Daryl said he spent the next year riding around on a moped. <laughs> <laughs> so for him to tell me that story, though, means that he was a natural talker, and he was a natural talker who used that skill to his advantage. Steve Lake Speed talked about his issues with Bud Moore in last week's episode. But to be honest with you, I was kind of thinking that was Bud in his later years when that team was kind of winding down its tenure in the sport. But this week, Daryl talked about his relationship with Bud. And let's just say it was my way or the highway back then <laughs> <laughs> in the early 1970s when he was still pretty much at the top of the sport. Well, the situation was not a really good one for Daryl because you just said it. Bud was at the top of his game back then, and Bud had been around for a lot of years, and he was not about to change his ways for this kid, okay? Yeah. That's what Daryl was back yeah. then. Bud, in his own mind, and he was right about this, probably thought, I forgot more about racing. This kid really knows right now, so I'm not going to listen to him. Yeah, well, as a case in point, Daryl has to use Bobby Isaac's seat and helmet, and neither fit him. And when he tells Bud about it, Bud's like, tough, deal with yeah. it. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's right. And that's exactly what I was talking about. Bud had his ways set, and he wasn't going to do anything differently for a kid. 
Well, Richmond, September 3rd, 1973, Richard Petty wins by two laps over Kel Yarbrough. And Daryl mentioned this race because it was the race where there was this big wreck early in the race and he winds up in a fire. In thinking about that race, I did go back and looked at some of the stats. It was the seventh straight win for Richard at Richmond's. The seventh. That's incredible. Incredible. seventh. And going all the way back to the spring of 1967 through the spring of 1975, Richard Petty won 12 of that track's 17 cup races. So he was pretty good at Richmond. He was pretty good at Richmond. Oh, yeah. No (laughs) doubt about it. And Steve, here's a piece of trivia for you. Richard's second win in that epic run was held on September the 10th, 1967, the day before yours truly was born. Man, that was a long time <laughs> In the accident itself, Baxter Price was making the first start of his Winston Cup career, and on the fourth lap, he spun off turn four. Daryl wells into him. Dick Brooks hits him and ruptures the fuel tank, and there's this huge fire that completely blocks the track. Now, Steve, when I was working for the newspaper in North Wilkesboro, the Journal Patriot, the editor at the time, Charles Williams, had been at that race, and he had just this phenomenal sequence of photos that he had taken, had them framed on the wall. And so I remember those so very vividly, and that's kind of one of the reasons why I kind of got to looking back at this race. But in all that, Bud Moore (laughs) (laughs) calls on the radio and says, Daryl, before you get out of that car, better get that radio. I don't want it to burn up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was Bud. Bud. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, holy cow, man, that was serious. Now, Steve, one of the knocks on DW in those early days was the fact that his father-in-law, Stevie's dad, was the president of Texas Gas, and his company actually owned Terminal Transport, which was Daryl's sponsor in those early days. So the knock on DW was that he was rolling in money and that he was living off his father-in-law, but evidently that wasn't exactly the case. Daryl did talk about being broke writing bad checks, paying Jake Elder on Friday, and then having to borrow it right back on Monday. So I I think that the rich kid perception was there, but as his career progressed and he started having some success, he proved himself as the real deal. You know, at those early days, I never got the impression that Daryl was rolling in the money because to me, I mean, he really had a shoestring operation. If you could see it up against some of the other powerhouse teams, it was just minuscule. And if the guy was rolling in money, how come he was operating on such a slight budget? That's the impression I got. Steve, then they go to Daytona in July of 1975, and Daryl passes Donnie Allison on the last lap for fourth place. And when we talked to Donnie, he said that he got fired the very next day and was told by the gardeners that they didn't think that he could still win. Now, that's Donnie's side of the story, but on Daryl's part, Daryl came back to the track to pick up his check, and he was told that Jim Gardner is looking for him, and that Guard wants to hire him as their driver. And, and Daryl being Daryl, he's like, well, my team's better than their team. I beat them all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and basically dismisses it. So then he and Stevie take off to Charlotte, 
And when they stop for gas, Jim Gardner is actually at the very same gas station. Now, just by think, chance. And do you think fate's trying to tell Daryl something here? <laughs> well, you know what? He's not listening because Jim makes his pitch right there and Daryl tells him that he's not interested again. So going up the road, Stevie asked who he'd been talking to. I was talking to Jim Gardner. He owns the 88 car. And I told him he wasn't interested. And Stevie says, turn this car around right now. <laughs> so maybe she was getting a little tired of seeing her husband struggle like he had been. So one thing leads to another. And he does go to drive for Die Guard Racing, the number 88 car, the very famous Gatorade sponsored car. And Steve, when that team was going well, it went really really, really well. Very well. Absolutely. It became one of the prominent teams in NASCAR. I think sometime between 78 and 81 when Daryl was there. Pair it up. All right. You got, you got die guards starting out and starting to good, has good personnel working for him. No question about that. And then you got Daryl up and coming rising star. You mesh the two of them together. And what happened for the next three years or so, Diegard and Daryl became one of the top organizations in NASCAR. As well as they were doing on the racetrack and winning all the races that they were winning and coming so close to the championship in 1979. Beginning in 1977, there were rumors that Daryl was looking elsewhere. In 1978, we've talked about it on a previous podcast, he had all but a done deal to go to drive for Harry Rainier. What was the cause? What was the overall cause of all that drama? Was it Daryl's personality? Was it the Gardner's management style? Or what was the cause of all that eruption? What you just said right there, both those things right there. Daryl's style on the track was one thing, but Daryl did not sit still when he thought things could be improved. And he also didn't like it much when he thought his suggestions and plans for the team were largely ignored. Now, the Gardners were strictly businessmen, in my opinion. They were always looking toward the bottom line. And I think that that had its way of distracting what was going on because if things went wrong and the Gardners didn't like how the bottom line was looking, they did not hesitate to take action. That means somebody is gone. Steve, again, we have talked about the 1979 championship run between Richard and Darrell before And Daryl actually said that he felt like he beat himself when he had lapped the field at Darlington, but then he slapped the wall trying too hard. He was going a little too fast, and Buddy Parrott was on the radio trying to tell him to slow down, take it easy a little bit, and Daryl was like, hey, I'm the one driving this car. I'm going to do what I want to do, and pop. That's my point exactly. (laughs) That's my point exactly. And Steve – Daryl did say that that specific incident in the 1979 Southern 500 actually helped him in the long run because it was at that point where he became so focused on not beating himself. And Daryl was not known as a Dale Earnhardt type hard charger. He was very collected on the racetrack, very calculating on the racetrack. Yeah, that was his style. And uh, he was very good at it, by the way. But what he learned at Darlington about not beating himself was a very valuable lesson. And that's one thing about good drivers. Good drivers learn lessons from what happens to them on the track. Bad drivers or drivers who don't make it are stubborn and don't change their ways when they need to. That's the difference. I think Daryl did a lot of learning 
over the years, not only on the racetrack, but off the racetrack. I don't think there's any question about it. The older he got, the mellower he got. And he was still, uh, still, he was still that very calculating driver. Steve, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at SpeedwayTSJ.Etsy.com. Steve, this week, Brian had another <laughs> had another banner week. week. He had some more Dick Trickle stuff. He had a Dick Trickle t-shirt or two. He had a Dick Trickle cap or two. Posted some Martinsville Speedway memorabilia. I'm telling you, man, if I had all the money in the world, I would buy Brian out. <laughs> Forget about the sponsorship of the podcast. I would be with the one paying him for all this stuff that he has. It's I amazing. Don't think, I, don't, I can't say as I blame you whatsoever. <laughs> so, again, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at SpeedwayTSJ.Etsy.com. That's SpeedwayTSJ.Etsy.com. That's E-T-S-Y.com. Steve, the July 21st, 1977 issue of Grand National Scene, that was our sixth issue. Really? Yes, the sixth issue ever. So that publication was still very wet behind the ears, but there was a lot to talk about in this issue. So the finishing order of the 1977 Nashville 420 is one of the craziest I have ever seen, period, into discussion, bar none. Okay. <laughs> Steve, are you ready for this? Okay. Okay. There were 30 cars in that event, and two finished on the lead lap. Cuckoo Marlin and Frank Warren finished 11th and 12th, respectively, and they both finished 401 laps, 19 (laughs) laps down to race winner Darrell Walter. That's in a different area code, man. (laughs) Okay. Now, Darrell finished a lap ahead of second place Bobby Allison who was a lap ahead of third place, Richard Petty, who was a lap ahead of fourth place, Carol Yarbrough, who was a lap ahead of fifth place, Dick Brooks. (laughs) And Steve, other than Cuckoo and Frank Warren, every single driver in that event were on different laps. My gosh. That is just a crazy finishing order. Then came the finish of the race. Okay. Now, Baxter Price, who had Uh, triggered that accident at Richmond that we discussed in the previous segment, he spun in turn two with five laps to go. Okay. Oh, Baxter. All right. Yeah. That kind of thing happens. Then with three laps to go, the green flag was displayed for a split second, but then immediately withdrawn when Kel Yarbrough was out of place on the outside line right behind Darrell. So he was out of place. Right. Okay. Okay. I'm with you so far. (laughs) They showed the green flag and then immediately took it back and displayed the yellow again. The next time around, the field accelerated off turn four, expecting the green flag, but the yellow stayed out again, and the poor pace car driver just about got run over as the field blew past him. (laughs) The pace car driver actually had to dive onto pit road to keep from getting hit. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this is going to be a mess. <laughs> well, he dives onto pit road 
And he started to move back onto the track because there's only a couple of laps left. But then he was waved off and ordered to stay in the pits. The green flag was finally displayed the next time around, setting up a one-lap dash to the finish. <laughs> but it was all but academic because, again, Daryl was the only car on the lead lap. <laughs> <laughs> What's more, the unofficial finish showed Richard Petty ahead of Bobby Allison, but Bobby didn't agree, and after a complete check of the scorecards, it was determined that Bobby was second, a lap ahead of Richard. It took two days for them to figure that out, by the way. (laughs) That is how scoring has so absolutely changed over the years. Daryl actually said in the race lead that you did not write because you have apparently never been to Nashville I, st- I still can't believe that. <laughs> you completely spun me out by saying that a couple of episodes ago. Well, I just never have been, unfortunately <laughs> for me. Daryl said in the race lead, I was told I had a lap on the field, but I wasn't sure and didn't want to take any chances. So I tried for the best restart possible. Well, given how the race was going at the time, I don't blame him. <laughs> take nothing for granted when they keep doing this scoring message like that. Nashville in July, it could get very, very, very hot and very, very, very humid, and that played a part in this race. There's a photo by Leonard Caldwell where Daryl is sprawled out on the hood of his car after the race. He's being given oxygen by Stevie and an EMT, and there's poor Daryl sprawled out on the hood of his car, all (laughs) but passed out, and there's a guy with a microphone pointing it at him. (laughs) Nosy media. (laughs) Come on, those dang media. (laughs) Can't leave a poor guy alone. But once Daryl was able to collect his wits, he said in the race lead, the heat was real bad. Being dehydrated was the worst. I feel like I'm a quart low on Gatorade. (laughs) (laughs) Way to support the sponsor, don't you think? (laughs) Then, Rob Griggs' column. Wow. I, I don't even know where to begin on this deal. Rob's filter. Must have been broken that night. (laughs) For example, in this column, Rob wrote, from his post-race remarks at Victory Circle to his treatment of the press to his off-the-cuff remarks regarding Grand National Motorsports rider Gene Granger, Waltrip seemed to be reminding everyone of the chip he carries on his shoulder as he whirls around the circuit on a private ego trip. Come on, Rob. Say what you mean. He was coming at him with both barrels there. I'm telling you, guns blazing on that one. (laughs) Rob went on to describe the setting in the press box after the race. It was a night race, so that made for a really long and really hot day. And I'm sure that nerves were already pretty frazzled as riders from the daily papers were trying to meet their deadlines. When Darrell gets to the press box, he sees Ray Blanton, who was at the time the governor of the state of Tennessee in the next box over. And he decides right then and there that he's going to go say hello. And he stays gone so long that his PR guy has to go fetch him. And if nerves were already frayed, that just about sent him over the edge. (laughs) I will say on DW's part, not the best move to make at that time. (laughs) And Rob wrote, if he was trying to impress people, he was successful. We were quite impressed with his rudeness and all too (laughs) cocky (laughs) behavior. But then once he gets to the press box, he proceeds to take on Gene Granger. He proceeds to take on George Cunningham, who is a writer from Atlanta, who is the namesake to this day 
of the National Motorsports Press Association's Rider of the Year Award, and he proceeds to take on Daryl Derringer, who was helping out Diegard at the time, and then maybe even Diegard himself. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a banner night for old DW. <laughs> well, he was he was feeling pretty good because he won a very tough race. He had a chance to get over his dehydration and come to the press box. And I'll be honest with you, I don't think DW wanted to be in the press box at that time of night. But he made the most of it. Now, my idea is the only mistake he made was hanging out with the governor too long and keeping the riders waiting. <laughs> and most people don't care if riders are hot and tired and itching to make their deadlines. They don't care. They want to know about the race, and they want to know who won the race. Outside of what the riders are suffering through, they don't, they don't really care. And that's, that's fine. But when Daryl <laughs> takes so long with the governor and really sets him on the edge, they're not going to be in the best of moods when he comes into that press box finally. And I can, you know, I, I, I can understand what Rob was thinking at that time. I really can. But what I was just expressing was several other people were expressing about Daryl at the time, both competitors and fans. Rob quoted Daryl as saying that night, I know I have a great future ahead of me. My sponsor does too. And they are doing all they can to keep me happy. I am on the third year of a five-year contract, and I know I won't be driving a green race car all of my life. So that's a little bit of an insinuation that he's looking around even then in 1977. No question about it. And I think he's getting feelers from other organizations at this time. Steve, Rob concluded by writing, most of the top teams want a driver who has the use of both feet. And at the present, Waltrip is only using one. The other is almost constantly (laughs) in his mouth. So (laughs) Rob Griggs fired away, buddy. (laughs) That's not bad writing, to tell the truth. (laughs) But that's exactly the kind of uh, attitude people had toward Daryl at the time. I've said that before. It's very important, I think, which telling of this is Kerry Yarbrough's nickname for Daryl was Jaws for the simple reason he ran his mouth all the time. Well, I guess in this case, Rob Griggs was Jaws too. (laughs) (laughs) And Steve, the vision of the press box at the Nashville Fairgrounds Speedway brought back some memories. (laughs) Now notice I didn't say good memories. (laughs) (laughs) The way that it was set up, the press box was just a row above the last row in the grandstands. So when, the people on the top row of the grandstands would stand up. We couldn't see the racetrack. So we're sitting there. We're trying to take our notes. We're trying to watch the race. And people would stand up, and we'd knock on the window, and we'd try to get them to sit down, and we'd get flipped off. And they would, <laughs> oh, it was, it was bad. Well, Bill Kaiser, who was a writer for one of the other publications at the time, Bill, you were on our Zoom cast a couple of weeks ago after the race one year, and I don't remember what year it was, But after the race, Bob Harmon, who was the promoter, came up and he set up shop in the press box. And he was entertaining some guests and everything. And and the longer they were there, the louder that Bob was talking. And so finally, Bill Kaiser, I'll never forget it, Bill Kaiser stops riding and at the top of his lungs bellowed, for the love of God! Be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> and this is Bill Kaiser telling the track promoter, the track owner, 
to be quiet. So I thought we were going to have a riot right then and there. <laughs> <laughs> My buddy Tom Higgins was good at that too. Well, I can remember quiet. Pappy. Oh yeah. Absolutely. I can remember Pappy. I was the focus of one of those one time <laughs> and I'm still scared. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nashville is kind of weird all the way around. Tell me, Rick, is this the truth? Did you come into the pits? Did drivers come in the pits on what was the first turn and go out on what was the fourth turn? Is that correct? By the time I started covering bush races, it was a more standard pit road. Okay. But from what I understand, I don't remember. I don't remember how they pitted back in the late 70s, early 80s. It was evidently quite the hairy situation because it's my understanding that they actually went on to the quarter-mile racetrack and had to pit there. So it was... That might have had something to do with the scoring snafu back then. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I'm Steve Mill, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, we had our second Zoom cast last week, and this time we were joined by Bobby Hillen and Jerry Kennan. And Jerry had worked with not only Bobby as his crew chief in the Bush Series, but Jerry had also served as Sam Ard's crew chief way back in yeah. the day. So that was a great conversation. I'll bet. Now, Steve, are you ready for this one? Are you sitting down? Uh, all right. Yeah, all right. yeah. All right. This week on the Zoom cast, we will be joined by Rick Mast. Oh, <laughs> am I going to be ready for him? <laughs> same bat time, same bat channel, 7 p.m. <laughs> on Thursday. Please email us if you would like to be involved in that call. Email us at scenevault at yahoo.com for an invitation, and I will get that out to you. Steve, I think that I figured out a way that when I send out invitations, people can actually register for all of the Zoomcasts that we do, so I don't have to keep sending out multiple invitations to the same people every week. So this week, I think I've got it figured out to where people can just register for all the ScenVault Zoomcasts, so check that out. And again, email us at scenevault at yahoo.com for an invitation. We had a pretty interesting trivia contest last week. Fred Peck, he kind of ran away with it a little bit. But this week, that trivia contest will resume. So, everybody, I look forward to talking to you on Thursday. Please join us if you can. And, Steve, thank you for being here this week. Thank you for everything that you've done for this podcast. And, again, we continue to grow every week. Yes, sir, Rick. It's been my pleasure to tell you that. I've had a lot of fun doing this. I'm really glad that folks are listening and participating with us because it's just a great thing to be doing. Steve, I don't know if you saw it, but 20 years ago today was the day that we lost Adam. Right, yeah. I cannot believe it's been 20 years. I can't. Absolutely cannot believe. It's unreal. It's just like... Where does the time go?